Our sermon text this morning is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Luke 10, 1 through 20. And you can find that on page 1027 in your Sanctuary Bible. We're going to delve into the text a bit today. We're going to be looking at it sort of line by line. There's a lot in here that's kind of interesting. One thing that I want to talk about before uh, I read it, just to introduce it a little bit, is that this is still in the context of Jesus resolutely setting his face towards Jerusalem. In fact, it follows directly after that story. Jesus is on his way from the Galilee um, down to Judea, and he has to pass through Samaria to get there. Samaria is sort of hostile territory. There's some people there that reject him. There's some people there that accept him. We see in various places that the Samaritans have a mixed sort of response to Jesus. Some, some embrace him, some don't. There's a lot of spiritual, for lack of a better word, spiritual conflict going on all around Jesus in this time. There's a spiritual conflict that we saw two weeks ago when he uh, cast these demons out of this one man. Uh, today, there's a spiritual conflict as Jesus sends out 70 of his disciples to go prepare the way ahead of him in Samaria and on the way down to Jerusalem. And there's two really famous demonic forces that get mentioned in this passage. One is serpents, and we remember the serpent from Genesis, the serpent that tempted Eve into eating the apple, that lied to Eve about what, what I shouldn't say apple, it really says fruit. Well, I always think of it as an apple, but it's a fruit. Uh, the serpent tempts Eve into eating a fruit and lies to her about what will happen. He says, you will become like God. You'll become like God if you eat this. It was a, a half-truth. Eve did become like God because she was able to see good and evil, but the, the rest of the promise really didn't pan out because um, that eternity of paradise that they were set for, Adam and Eve in the garden, was lost in that moment. So we know the ser serpent from that passage, but we also get mention of of the prince of all the demons here, Satan. Jesus mentions him by name in this passage too. Just as an aside, there's been some confusion in the church as to whether or not the serpent from the garden is the same person as Satan, whom God has a conversation with, for example, in the book of Job, the same Satan that tempts Jesus in the wilderness, the same Satan that's sort of cast, cast into the outer darkness in the book of Revelation. And the Bible isn't completely clear on that. Uh, Romans 16, Revelations 12 and 20, if you want to look those up when you get home, seem to put a connection between the serpent and Satan. But in other places in the Bible, there's a sense that the serpent is just one of God's creatures in the garden who happens to be a little smarter than the rest and he can talk and, and walk and tempts Eve. When all that goes down, we know that everybody gets a curse out of this, Right? Adam gets cursed by having to work really hard by the sweat of his brow to bring forth any kind of sustenance from the ground. Eve gets per, uh, cursed with difficulty in childbearing. And the serpent gets cursed in that he is no longer able to walk but has to slither on the ground. And there's this enmity then between the descendants of Adam and Eve and the serpent. And there's a prophecy or a curse, it's all together in Genesis 3, that the descendants of Eve will be in enmity with the serpent and will crush the serpent's head. And the serpent will bite their heel. So there's this sense that there's... A, it, and, and I would think of this more as a, um, as a spiritual 
sort of battle than a physical battle. Although you really don't want to step on a snake, right? You just want to avoid that. Yesterday we were at some people's house and there was this, it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen almost, was uh, we got out of the car and two feet from the car is a lizard about this long, a pretty big lizard, but not that big. And there was a snake and the snake was about this long. And the snake's mouth was closed and the lizard's mouth was clamped on top of the snake's mouth. It was really strange. I'm like, is this lizard going to eat that snake? It won't fit inside him. Uh, and and we, at first we thought the snake was dead because it was not moving at all. And, and actually ants were starting to crawl on it. So we thought, this is weird, you know. Then we, we and, and Kaya, our little one-and-a-half-year-old, oh, you know, just, we're like, ah, stop. We don't, please do not touch that. And, and children don't know, but adults, we have this revulsion. There's something, there's something in our DNA that looks at slithery things and just says, does, are there any amateur herpetologists in the room? Why does anyone know about this behavior? I, I sense that this, the, the lizard was trying to protect itself. We came out later to show the people whose house we were at, and um, the snake was alive. And the lizard had let go of it, and the snake was kind of, it was like a fight between the two. And then it, it saw us, and it slithered away, and it was all very distasteful. And I can, I can see from the reactions of this room that you're all feeling exactly the same way. But that's the point is that even in the physical world, we have this revulsion of snakes, but in, in this cursing of Adam and Eve and the serpent as they're expelled from the, gar- the garden, there's this enmity between the descendants of Adam and Eve that's going to be actually fulfilled in Christ Jesus, that, there's, that this crushing of the, of the serpent's head is going to take place by the power of one man. Um, so that's the backdrop for that. And let's go to our reading, Luke 10, 1 through 20. You can listen for the names of Satan and the serpents in there. This is the story about Jesus sending out 70 other disciples, not the 12. They'd already been sent out. 70 other people that Jesus managed to round up and send out into the world. So this is what it says, Luke 10. That's right. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to go to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go! I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. And do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick, pardon me, heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. But he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to clear something up right away. If you have a text note after the word 72, and there's a little letter A, perhaps, and you look down at the bottom, and these text notes are are valuable in your Bible because they show us where there's a slight variation in the original manuscripts. A certain number of manuscripts will have it one way, and if enough other manuscripts have it a different way, The people who put together this translation of the Bible think it's worth that you should know it and decide for yourself or just know that there's a little bit of conflict. And this is not really a very big theological problem that Jesus either sent out 70 disciples or 72 disciples. Um, My faith is not going to rise or fall on this question. But what's important here is the number. The number is important. 70 or 72 matches the number that we find in Genesis chapter 10 of all the descendants of Noah and all the nations of the world. And as it turns out that there's two versions of that story, one in one manuscript has that there's 70 nations. Another manuscript has that there's 72 nations. And so whoever was copying this thing was trying to make sure that it did match properly with the text that they knew. The whole idea, though, is that when Jesus sends out these disciples... He's saying, in essence, what I'm sending you out to do, I'm sending out for the entire world. I'm not just sending these people to Samaria on my way to Jerusalem, although physically that's what it was. He was sending people on just a narrow strip of land between where he was and where he was going. He was in Galilee, the southern end of Galilee, and he was going to Jerusalem. There was this land of Samaria in between, and these people were going to to prepare the way into town by town to do that. But also Jesus is saying, by going to Samaria, I'm sending you to the world. I'm sending you to people who don't know me. I'm sending you to people who are at enmity with me. And so Jesus is is really inaugurating the missional movement even in this passage. And most missionaries really have a good sense of this chapter. They They get a lot of their missionary identity from this chapter. So I want us to look at that. This is a blueprint for Jesus sending people out into the world to proclaim his name. Their job is to go ahead of him to Jerusalem, much like John the Baptist did. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. Their job is to to go into a town and sort of warm up the crowd. Uh, You know, you ever go to a rock concert and you really want to hear REO Speedwagon, but you have to listen to 30 minutes of Night Ranger first, and you're like, oh, please, Night Ranger, just sing the one song I like and get off the stage, right? Um, That's what this was. These guys were the warm-up act. They're like, Jesus is coming. The kingdom of God is coming near to you. Somebody's about to come through your town. You really want to be ready for when he comes so that you can get the most out of his visit. And um, he gives them some rules for the road. These are good rules for us. These are good rules for missionaries. 
One of the first things he says is the world is not safe. He says this, and this is, should be terrifying, right? I am sending you out like lambs among wolves, okay? Now, just think about that. And, and you can imagine the disciples going, thanks. Thank, really? Thank you? Uh, couldn't you send a lion along with us or something? I mean, couldn't you send some other animal? Not only is it a sheep among wolves, because sheep are a little bit bigger, when you think about it, a sheep has no natural defenses against a wolf. It can't outrun a wolf. It doesn't have the endurance. It can't um, fight a wolf. It's, it, it just doesn't have the teeth or the claws. Everything about a wolf is a killing machine. Its eyes are always pointing straight forward at its prey. It knows how to crouch and run. It not, knows how to work with other wolves to kind of, I mean, this is terrifying, right? This is almost as bad as the story of the lizard and the snake. But this is Jesus' word. Not only is it sheep among wolves, I'm sending you out as not the big fluffy sheep that maybe is kind of big. I'm sending you out as this cute little lamb that's kind of prancing along the, the, the green field, and the wolves are going to come. The wolves are going to come at you. This is dangerous stuff. You are outmatched by this. Well, what are we going to do with that? It's dangerous out there. We'll get to that. We'll get to why this is both dangerous, but we also have protection for it. One of the things I think we need to realize about this is that for us, the world is a place of trouble. For us, the world is a place of persecution. We go out spiritually, and we're at risk. There is danger out there. We are like lambs among wolves. And the world, if the world isn't safe for believers, at least the church needs to be a safe place, doesn't it? It needs to be a place where you're emotionally safe. It needs to be a place where you're physically safe. It needs to be a place where you're spiritually safe safe. This is a place where we need to build safety for each other because we are going to go out as lambs among wolves. We have to know that we can trust each other. We have to know that we can be safe around each other first. The rules for the road go on. Jesus says, because it's so dangerous out there, I'm not going to send you out alone. I'm going to send you out in pairs. You have each other's back. You're with each other. You're not going to go do this alone. I think one of the hardest things um, to do in Christian ministry is to do it alone. I remember when I was a youth pastor, and I had a lot of great volunteers, but I could only get so many hours out of the volunteers, which is fine. They, they worked their hearts out, and it was excellent. But eventually, we got some interns to help me do my youth ministry. And they, we paid them, or they kind of paid themselves, but they had to be there, so they were always there. And I really felt the ministry enhanced so much. Because I wasn't doing it so much alone, but I had these companions on this journey with me. And there, it felt like there was almost nothing that we came up against that we couldn't work on together. You, go out, you don't go out into this world alone. You go out with somebody else. And if there's danger out in the world, your first line of defense is the Holy Spirit living within you, protecting you. But your second line of defense, which is huge, is another human being, another believer who's on the same mission as you, doing the same things as you, who you can lean on and call up and say, hey, I need help. And I, I mean, my mother is here today. She's visiting. I'm going to embarrass her slightly. But sometimes I call my mother and I ask her to pray with me on the phone because I don't have the words to pray in that moment. I need somebody else to pray with me. And she does it. She always has time for that, which is great. Um, I'm really pleased that we have Pastor Zach. He's, on, he's 
on a much-needed vacation with his family this week. I'm very happy for that. I'm glad he's with us on the staff. He and I are colleagues and friends, and we're in this together, and it's important. I love that he's asked us to be in these smaller groups so that in our church we can have companionship with each other. We don't go out alone. Jesus then says, here's some more rules for the road. Don't take anything with you. Uh, Don't take your purse. Don't take your bag. What he's saying is travel light. If you're carrying around all sorts of other stuff with you, whether it's the worries or concerns of this world or anything else, it's just going to slow you down. And Jesus is not in a mood to be slowed down right now. He's got his face set towards Jerusalem. Travel light. Don't take anything with you, which means you have to rely on the people that you go and minister to. If you go into a house and your peace rests on it, stay in that house and eat, eat what they give you. And God will provide you. If he asks you to go do something, he'll also provide what you need to go do it. And so these disciples, you can imagine, they went into towns, and the, the towns that didn't reject them, they went to a house. And the house that didn't reject them, they went into that house. And that house, miraculously, found enough food for two grown people to eat while they did this missionary work. Uh, it's, it's God's providence. God says, when you go out into the world, I'll take care of your needs. I'll take care of it. And then here, it starts, the, the tenor of this passage starts to change a bit, but I think it's very important. If the town rejects you, you have to make clear what that rejection entails. What are the consequences of that rejection? That town may reject your message by rejecting your message. It's rejecting me, and if it rejects me, it rejects the one who sent me. It's a big deal. You're rejecting God. And then he says you go out into the middle of the town and do something very symbolically, which is to take the shoes off of your feet and clap them together so that all the dust that may have stuck to your feet from that town falls off your shoes so you can say to the town, I'm not taking anything from you guys. I'm not stealing any of your food. I'm not taking any of your water. Even this dust that stuck to my feet, you may want back someday to build a road with or a house or a brick with. I'm giving you all this dust back so that you can have it back because I'm not taking anything from you. Your rejection is so complete. My rejection of you has to be so complete. And it, it sounds like a strong, a stern cursing. It sounds like a, a really rough way to sort of deal with people. But it's for the salvation of that town. It's like when somebody in the church has, has transgressed so much and will not listen to even a larger group of people. They're put out of the body for a season so that they can be redeemed. It, it becomes so clear to them how broken they are. It's the same with this town. You make it very clear to them, I'm shaking the dust off my feet. This is a big deal. You're rejecting God by rejecting his son, Jesus Christ. So that they will wake up instead of saying, oh, who was that? That person, they came and went, we don't really know what that was. Instead, they'll say, did you see what they did? They shook the, they shook the dirt off their feet to really make a point to us about what we were rejecting. Well, what did we reject? Maybe we should pay more attention to this. And so... It's just a way of intensifying it so that people pay attention. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants to get people's attention. Next we have, and if you look at um, verse 11, uh, verse 12, uh, Jesus actually mentions six different towns. The town, if that town rejects you, it's going to be worse for that town than for Sodom. Remember Sodom? Sodom was destroyed by God. Abraham had this argument with God. Can I find 50 people who are righteous in this town if I do? then you won't destroy. God says, fine. 45, 40, 30, 
Finally, finally, God couldn't even find five righteous people in the whole town of Sodom, and it was destroyed. And Jesus is saying, you know what? These, these towns that reject me, it's going to be worse for them than for that town in the Old Testament. That's hard words. And then he mentions a few other towns. Chorazin, and this, is, this and its parallel passage in Matthew are the only two places where this town is mentioned. We don't know anything about it, except that it must have rejected Jesus on some level. We don't know much more about it. Bethsaida we know a little bit about. We find that Jesus went to Bethsaida and he found a man who was blind in that town. But he didn't heal him in the town. He took him outside the town and he healed his eyes there so that he could see. And then he told him not to go back into the town. So maybe there was, I don't know, but maybe there was something about that town that rejected Jesus. We find in other places in the gospel that there were some towns that Jesus was really not able to do much in because the people didn't have faith. He laid his hands on a few, but he really wasn't able to do great deeds of power in some of these towns because the people had unbelief. And so there's towns that seem to reject Jesus and what he's doing, and perhaps Chorazin and Bethsaida are in those. But Tyre and Sidon had sent people to Jesus that they could be healed, and they went back and told. And so Tyre and Sidon are somewhat compared positively here. If people in Tyre and Sidon had seen what I had done in these other towns, they would have repented even longer ago, and, and they would have really come around. It's going to be better for Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then finally, and this might be the hardest one, Capernaum. Jesus was in Capernaum a lot. He did a lot of miracles in Capernaum. He taught a lot in Capernaum. He even compared Capernaum favorably to his hometown of Nazareth. He said, probably you'll say, if I had done the deeds in Nazareth that you've seen me done, do in Capernaum, you would have believed me. But I'm, I'm a hometown prophet, and I don't get b- believed in my own hometown. Capernaum, for all the deeds that they saw Jesus do there, Jesus says, even they're probably going to reject me, and it's not going to go well for Capernaum. The rules for the road are that the world isn't safe. We have to protect each other in the church because we're going out like lambs among wolves. We don't go alone. We don't take anything with us. We eat what's given to us make clear what rejection results in, and realize that some people in some towns will reject the message of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised that this message that we bring into this world will be rejected. People will push back at it and say, get out of our town, get out of our life. I don't want anything to do with that. That happened to me once. I had a friend in high school um, who had some difficult family issues and um, he had a terrible addiction to pornography. He just, his, his, mom, his mom actually bought it for him because she figured at least then he's not going out stealing things or something. And once I, I, I sat down with him and I, I, I thought I was being a good evangelical and I said, Let's, I want to tell you about what I believe in. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about the gospel. And he stopped me. He said, don't ever talk to me about that again. If you do, we will never be friends again. That's what he said. Exactly that. And that was rejection. And I was deflated. I, oh, you don't even want to hear it? You know. And I, I valued our friendship, so I, just, I, I agreed. I said, okay, I won't talk about it anymore. I'll just be your friend. We'll hang out. There's more to that story that comes later. I'll 
remind me if I forget how that story ends. To, you ask me. But there's rejection in this world. People reject. People reject Jesus. Well, let's move on. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And here we see the disciples are actually starting to do some of the things that Jesus is able to do. He's been casting out demons all along. Now, other people are starting to cast out demons. And as part of Jesus' march towards Jerusalem, part of his journey there, he's beginning to shed his authority and delegate it to other people. So he's giving them the authority to go into these towns. He's going and giving them the authority to prepare the way for them. And they're finding that they even have authority over demonic powers in his name. And by the time he gets to the cross, he'll, and, and especially after the cross and by the time we get to Pentecost, we'll see that Jesus has given away all of his power to all of us. In fact, he even tells his disciples that we'll do, we will do greater things than he ever did, which I really want to see. I believe it. I just, I really want to see it. And I guess it actually has happened, you know. It's, it's just, it looks maybe a little different than we think. I, I don't know anyone who's brought anyone back from the dead. I certainly have seen demons thrown out of people. Uh, there have been miraculous healings. Jesus' followers are capable of doing even greater things than he did on this earth. That's a promise. But he's beginning to give away his authority to his followers. They come back. They're excited. They return with joy. Their, their mission work has been fruitful. And he said, Jesus replies to them, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And the imagery here might be something like this. You, you could ask the question, where does, where does Satan abide? Where is his abode? Where does Satan live? Um, is he down somewhere in the core of the earth where it's really hot? You can imagine the volcanoes spurting all sorts of places. Or is he walking around among us now? Well, you read, for example, the book of Job, and you have this sense that Satan is up amongst the angels, kind of hiding in between them here and there. Uh, and he has these conversations with God, and there's this some, one sense that Satan is up in this courtroom with God. And he's the one that's accusing us of all sorts of things. And, and he's actually probably right. He's accusing us of all the sins that we commit. He's up there advocating against us at the judgment seat of God. But somehow in this moment where Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem and he's giving his power away to these people to, to cast out demons, Satan's place there as an accuser against us is being destroyed. And they're almost like the bailiff comes to Satan, puts handcuffs on him, takes him over to the edge of heaven off this giant cliff down there, and one guy gets one, his legs and one guy gets his arms, and they just swing him over the edge. And down he tumbles like lightning, and he falls to the earth. And you read, you read Revelation, and you get this sense that he's bound up, for a thousand years and he's thrown into this pit and he's imprisoned. The sense that Jesus, in giving away his power on the way to Jerusalem and sending missionaries out to the whole world is binding the power of Satan to accuse us. And ultimately at the cross, that's what happens because the, the accuser loses his power to accuse us anymore when the blood of Christ pours out of him and washes us perfectly clean. 
That's what's at stake here. That's what's happening. So Jesus is talking about the moment he's in now, but he's also talking about the future. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He has lost his place and his ability to accuse us. And then verse 19, he's giving away even more of his authority. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Even lambs among wolves, but yet nothing will harm you because of the power that they have with them. We have that serpent again. The disciples have the power to tread on the serpent's head. And Jesus himself does that at the cross. He crushes the serpent once and for all. Think about what the serpent does. The serpent tells lies. And as a result, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They lose their place in God's kingdom on earth, this eternal, beautiful place of paradise that they were in. The bookend to this is on the other side. When the disciples go out and instead of telling a lie, tell the truth about who Jesus is. The lie is countered by a truth. The expulsion from the kingdom is countered by the kingdom of God is now near you because we're telling the truth about who Jesus is. We're telling the truth about who you are. So the, the disciples are countering that lie told in the beginning, and they're countering the consequences of that lie so that in their power and what they go out to do, they're undoing the fall from grace by bringing people into the grace of Jesus Christ and his life. That happens. The New Testament talks about this, about how through the disobedience of one man, all fell. But through the obedience of one man, a different man, Jesus Christ, all were saved. And the curses that came about even in the beginning of the book are realized at the end of the book. And this is what missionary work is, is to bring that news to tell the truth about who Jesus is and what he does and undo the lie with the truth of the gospel. It's exciting. I've got goose pimples just thinking about it. Where does this leave us? I think first is we really need to, we need to pray like crazy for our missionaries. We just need to pray like crazy for them because they may have some physical challenges like where are they going to find a place to rent or are they going to have enough food or can they save enough money to send their kids to college, which is all important, but I think that's dwarfed by the spiritual conflict that's swirling all around them. We Talk to Karen Sorensen, who's one of our missionaries in Micronesia. For her particularly, the spiritual realm is very active against what she's doing. It's huge. There's oppression there. And we need to pray for our missionaries that they'll be, even though they're like lambs among wolves, that they'll have this promise of Jesus. You have authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy you have that authority. Nothing will harm you. We need to pray for our missionaries. But also remember that it's not just our missionaries that are our missionaries. We are missionaries to all of us in some form or another. We have work to do. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. All that means is that we have to work pretty hard because one harvester has to harvest more than a normal harvester would just to make up for it, just so that all of it can come in. 
We have to keep each other safe here in the church, have each other's backs, be able to trust each other. If we go out into the world, we go out together. We go out in community with each other. We can't do it alone. You need somebody praying for you. You need somebody with you when you go and do it. We don't do it alone. And when we go out, we're not surprised at rejection. It will come. Rejection will come because the gospel is a scandal. The gospel is foolishness to this world. The world hates it. And the world will hate us if we, if we speak it. And our friends will say, don't ever talk about that to me again or I won't be your friend anymore. My friend, I lost touch with him for a while, but then I, I reconnected with him at one point. And um, he had married a Catholic girl, which is great. God bless the Catholics because he went to church every Sunday and she insisted that he did too. And I think he got, he went to church because he got married to a Catholic girl and he had to go to church if he was going to be married to her. So by hook or by crook, he got into the church. But in the church, and even in the Catholic church, the gospel is proclaimed. The word of God is read. Jesus Christ is the savior of all creation, even in the Catholic church. And he went to the Catholic church and he became a believer. And I asked him, I said, you believe it. You're not just going there because your wife makes you. No, I believe it now. I believe it. I said, you know, I hate to ask you this, but you used to really read a lot of pornography. Do you still do that? Nope. I'm not interested in that anymore. It's done with. He had a new life. Maybe I planted a seed that day, or maybe this, the time wasn't right. Somebody else had to plant a seed. He rejected the gospel. I gave him the space that he needed. But God and God's time brought about a harvest, and God is good that way. So you don't be surprised at rejection as you go out, but don't be surprised at acceptance either. Don't be surprised at the miraculous. Don't be surprised at people you'd never think would get it getting it, because that happens all the time too. All we have to do is go. That's all that Jesus says. Go with an exclamation point after it, beginning of verse 3. Go. Tell the truth. Undo the lie. God's responsible to plow and to plant and to water and we have the blessing of harvesting from time to time and accept the rewards of going. You may find that your needs are actually taken care of when you go out and do God's missionary work here in this world. That's where that leaves us. But finally, I just want to say with Jesus, verse 19, he says this, to you, to me, to everyone in this room, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to over come all the power, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Son Jesus commands us to go. Go out into that plentiful harvest, as few workers as they are. Remind us of our rules as we go out, rules to keep us safe. Remind us also that even if we are lambs among wolves, yet you will keep us from harm and you will protect us and give us power and authority to do great things in your name. Amen.